It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Hey guys, it's Brian, the host of the Money Guy Show. Today we're going to be covering two things. We're going to be talking about, you know, I've been doing some things, you know, in the community as well as going to birthday parties on the weekends for the kids. And I always have people coming up and asking me financial questions. And I want to tell you some of the, the concerns that have been brought to me recently. And I just like, I wish I could say, take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. But, you know, it's hard to, to tell people that without sounding like you're trying to almost demean their thoughts and their right. concerns. Right. So I wanted to go a little deeper because I know our podcast listeners can under, go a lot deeper and really have an appreciation because they're probably having the exact same things going on in their lives. So I'm also going to use the wisdom of Warren Buffett to be that breath of fresh air because I went back and read some of the the historical quotes he had made in the in his letters to shareholders that was pretty incredible it, when you look back on from a historical standpoint. So I'm going to bring those up in the beginning. And then the second thing we're going to be covering today is Code Red. There's a, another fee-only financial planner, and I have no problem giving kudos when people are doing incredible work. And I came across this article through Market Watch, and it was um, Dana Anspach. And, and Dana is a, also a fee-only financial planner out in Arizona. Um, we had a chance to, to look her up after I found this article, and I just found myself reading this article and going, right on, Dana. Right. I mean, that's exactly right. Now, what I liked about Dana's style was that she provided an example of something she came across in her career and then how that relates to your personal finances. So these are really code red items that are ways that could wipe out your retirement savings. And this came out back in September of this year. So I'm going to go over that with you. We'll also provide a link on the website. And that website, by the way, if you want to go check it out, is money-guy.com. We also have our Twitter feed. If you want to go check us out on Twitter, we're the Money Guy Podcast. Um, feel free to check into us on Facebook as well. And then, of course, a lot of you guys always check us out uh, for the free sign-up section on the Money Guy Show, where if you sign up, you get two additional free shows. And we also give you blast emails just to let you know what's going on. And then if you want to really get deep in the Money Guy family, go ahead and look at the premium section. That takes you all the way back to 2006 if you want to catch up on our archives, as well as gives you commentary. Another big update before I get into the content. Not sure the exact date. It might already actually be up by the time this show is released. We're actually doing a conversion on the website. And you know what drove us to change this website? Listeners like you. We got several of you that, you know, comments said, Hey guys, your, your website, love what you're doing, but it's, it's feeling a little old. And it is true. It seems like the, as fast as technology moves, if you're not updating your technology every two to three years, you are getting left behind. So we're trying to do everything in our power to keep the people over at iTunes happy, to keep the people at Stitcher happy, to keep all of our listeners happy so we can keep this machine running that y'all have empowered and continue to let it grow and grow and grow. And for that, I want to thank you. So please go check out the website. It's money-guy.com. So hey, let's, if you ahead. like it, shoot us an email, let us know. Or if you have any suggestions, things you'd like to see a little bit different, a little bit better, let us know too because we want to design this thing so it is the most beneficial for you that it can be. So please, please, please share your feedback with us. Yeah, and in the first few weeks, if it's doing anything glitchy, let us know. You know, you're kind of going to be our beta testers as we're, as we're trying this thing out because we are doing a, a whole conversion on this, on all the data and so forth. So just keep us posted, but we're doing that just to keep you in the loop so you know what's going on. So the first thing I want to talk about is, as I told you, I went to a jumpy birthday party. 
you know, I have kids. I have one that's 10. They're both daughters, by the way. So I've got the wedding funds already started. But um, if you knew my wife, you'd know why that's important. But I have a 10-year-old and then I also have a four-year-old. And so it's not uncommon that you find yourself at a jumpy party. And at jumpy parties are the perfect place for parents to come up to other parents and express their concern that the whole government is imploding. Nice, right. That's, I mean, that's, that's, the that's where, that that's where the ideal place I would think that you need to talk about that stuff. For some reason, that's what's happened to me in the past. And what I wanted to do was just tell you, and I get it. I mean, I don't think our podcast listeners fall prey to this, but I think a lot of the general public does. Because here's the stereotype of the podcast listener. Typically successful, typically well-educated, and when I, and I mean, really good savers. I mean, this is what I'm seeing when we have, you guys reach out and you let us see behind the curtain of what you've got going on in your finances. You're the top tier. I mean, you really are the cream that's floating on top. Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't have other outside influences. So I want to kind of give you some, some information because this gentleman came up to me at the party and was saying, Brian, let's face it. I mean, with this government shut down and how dysfunctional Washington is, they're going to ruin this thing, aren't they? This thing is, is going to run off the rails and, you know, we don't want to own cash because cash could be worthless any time now. I mean, he really said that. And then he's like, what about gold? Hmm. How about silver? Hmm. So, I mean, this is stuff that we were talking about back in 2011 because gold has had a huge run. But then you also, I mean, it, you don't see it as much anymore, but it wasn't uncommon on cable news channels to see seed banks being advertised. Right. And, there's, and you know, and still one of the most popular shows, I was watching um, Simpsons episodes, and they had a hilarious episode of Homer Simpson turning into a prepper. Nice. And um, so I got to watch that. So that's still something that we're talking about in pop culture. And there's nothing wrong, you know, if you want to have some, you know, some liquidity, you got to have your emergency reserves. If you want to have some cases of water or, or a nice water f- filtration or a flint, you know, so you can start, you know, a, a, a fire, that's fine. But let's not get crazy and think that the whole thing is imploding. Because as we found is going through probably now our third year of crisis, it seems like at the end of each year, we realize the sky really doesn't end up falling. And I decided what the smart thing to do before we moved on to the code red section, I pulled up two Berkshire Hathaway Letter to Shareholders, done by Warren Buffett. The first one's from 2012. This one's pretty short. And I thought, I'll be honest, I thought they both were in 2012. Like, when I pulled the 2012, I was like, let me go find that segment on gold. That was in last year's, which came out this year, which means April of of 2013 is when the 2012 came out. But then I was shocked to find out, nope, I should have been looking in the 2011. Um, And that shows how time just moves. But here's the 2012 quote that I thought kind of was that breath of fresh air. It said, a thought for my fellow CEOs. Of course, the immediate future is uncertain. America has faced the unknown since 1776. It's just that sometimes people focus on the uncertainties that always exist, while at other times they ignore them, usually because the recent past has been uneventful. Because American businesses will do fine over time, and stocks will do well just as certainly since their fate is tied to business performance. Periodic setbacks will occur, yes, but investors and managers are in a game that is heavily stacked in their favor. The Dow Dow Jones Industrial has advanced from 66, that's right, 66 to 11,497 in the 20th century, a staggering 17,320%. Increased that materialized despite four costly wars, a Great Depression, and many recessions. And don't forget that shareholders receive substantial dividends throughout the century as well. 
Since the basic game is so favorable, Charlie and I, Charlie Munger, Charlie and I believed it's a terrible mistake to try to dance in and out of it based upon the turns of tarot cards. Am I saying that right? You know, tarot. Tarot cards. Tarot cards. Shows how much I'm going to a psychic. <laughs> the predictions of experts or the ebb and flow of business activity, the risk of being out of the game are huge compared to the risk of being in it. My own history provides a dramatic example. I made my first stock purchase in the spring of 1942 when the U.S. was suffering major losses throughout the Pacific War Zone. Each day's headlines told of more setbacks. Even so, there was no talk about uncertainty. Every American I knew believed we'd prevail. The country's success since that perilous time boggles the mind. On an inflation-adjusted basis, GDP per capita more than quadruple between 1941 and 2012. Throughout that period, every tomorrow has been uncertain. America's destiny, however, has always been clear, ever-increasing abundance. So I think that that's just, wow. You listen it makes to you me. feel good. I mean, you're like, Warren's got this figured out. I mean, why, why am I not a billionaire? I, th- I kind of <laughs> think like that. He's got it figured out, and he had it figured out like 80 years ago. Probably didn't hurt that he, you know, right after World War II, but it's still, nonetheless... Incredible insight. So that leads to what I was truly looking for. I just found that little nugget. Went back and I found the 2011 quote that I was looking for. Here, and, it, and I promise I'll go through this as quickly as possible. It says the bait and it's titled, this is on page 17 of the 2011 letter to shareholders. It says the basic choices for investors and the one we strongly prefer. He almost makes you feel stupid for thinking about anything but doing it the way that Warren does it. He goes, investing is often described as the process of laying out money now in the expectation of receiving more money in the future. At Berkshire, we take a more demanding approach, defining investing as the transfer to others of purchasing power now with the reasoned expectation of receiving more purchasing power after taxes have been paid on nominal gains in the future. More succinctly, investing is foregoing consumption now in order to have the ability to consume more at a later date. The whole deferred gratification. gratification. Man, teach that in elementary schools. Think of how much better the whole country would be. Here it goes. Investment possibilities are both many and varied. There are three major categories. However, and it's important to understand the characteristics of each. So let's survey the field. So here he goes. He's going to set this thing up. I mean, you can just see it being set up. Here's the first one. Investments that are denoted in a given currency include money market funds, bonds, mortgages, bank deposits, and other instruments. Most of these currency-based investments are thought of as safe. In truth, they are among the most dangerous of assets. Their beta may be zero, but their risk is huge. And the risk he's talking about, by the way, is inflation. Because over the past century, those instruments have destroyed the purchasing power of investors in many countries, even as the holders continue to receive timely payments of interest and principal. This ugly result moreover, will forever reoccur, meaning that this is not going away. And this is probably is, could not be more timely as we have more, more, more and more sensitivity to interest rates. Governments determine the ultimate value of money, and systematic forces will sometimes cause them to gravitate to policies that produce inflation. From time to time, such policies spin out of control. Even in the U.S., where the wish for a stable currency is strong, the dollar has fallen a staggering 86% in value since 1965 when I took over management of Berkshire. Berkshire. It takes no less than $7 a day to buy what $1 did at that time. So, I mean, that says a lot there. Mm -hmm. And then he moves on. Let's go to the next one. The second major 
category of investments involves assets that will never produce anything. Now, this goes to my, my, you know, the guy, my friend who came up to me at the jumpy place. The second major category of investments involves assets that will never produce anything, but are purchased in the buyer's hope that someone else who also knows that the assets will forever be unproductive will pay more for them in the future. Tulips, of all things, briefly became a favorite of such buyers in the 17th century. This, it made me think of baseball cards when I read it. Yeah. I mean, it's it, he, he makes you feel stupid for not thinking like he does. Yep. It, but it's so brilliant. I mean, I wish I almost need to print this out, laminate it, and then when somebody comes up and asks you, you just pull out of your pocket should I go buy gold? Like, Here you go. Take one of these. <laughs> you know, the type of investment requires an expanding pool of buyers, one who in turn are enticed because they believe the buying pool will expand still further. Because remember, you're not getting any more of this asset. This asset is just a, a certain amount. And you're hoping there's more and more buyers so you can get that whole supply and demand. Yep. Since the demand is fixed, I mean, or supply is fixed, I should say, you're hoping there's more demand so it drives up the value of your holding because it's not generating any cash flow for you. He goes, so owners are not inspired by what the asset itself can produce. It will remain lifeless forever, but rather by the belief that others will desire it even more avidly in the future. The major asset in this category is gold. Currently a huge favorite of investors who fear almost all other assets, especially paper money, of whose value is noted, they are right to be fearful of. And this speaks exactly to what my my friend was asking me about. And remember, this was written back in the first part of 2012. So we're we're a few years removed from this. Gold, however, has two significant shortcomings, but being neither of much use nor procreative. True, gold has some industrial and decorative utility, but the demand for those purposes is both limited and capable of soaking up new production. Meanwhile, if you own one ounce of gold for an eternity, you will still own one ounce at its end. That's a fact. I mean, you're not going to lock it up and come back, you know, six years later and you open up, oh, wow, it turned into two. You can't put water on it and make it grow. It doesn't. What motivates most gold purchasers is their belief that the ranks of the fearful will grow. During the past decade, that belief has been proven correct. Beyond that, the rising price has on its own generated additional buying enthusiasm, attracting purchasers who see the rise as validating an investment thesis. As bandwagon investors join any party, they create their own truth for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's got a whole other paragraph that really kind of makes you feel stupid if you're a gold investor, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to go to this part, which goes in. This is the part I liked where it focused on the tangible side because it gave me a visual. I love anything. That's why I think I do so many analogies. I'm trying to give you, the listener, a a visual of something so that hopefully later when somebody speaks of something or you need to recall this, you get that visual of what I hopefully gave you in the podcast because Lord knows you don't see it because this is all audio. So this is what was great because this kind of gave you a tangible visual thing to think about. Today, the world's gold stock is about 170,000 metric tons. If all of this gold were melded together, it would form a cube of about 68 feet per side. That shocked me. That's not that huge. doesn't sound gigantic. So it says, picture it fitting comfortably within a baseball infield. You know, that's timely. We're mm-hmm. dealing with the World Series right now. The networks are probably loving that this thing has continued on. To, you know, it's not a, a blowout right. here. So, so interesting. At $1,750 per ounce, remember this is back from probably March or April of 2012, gold's price, as I write this, its value would be $9.6 trillion. Call this cube pile A. Okay. 
Now, Bo, is it scrolls across? What's gold trading at now? Isn't it around 1300 Yeah, let me see. It's 1342 right now. 1342 So we've already had a $400 per ounce decrease from the 1750 when this was written by, by Warren Buffett. Let's now create pile B, costing an equal amount of money. For that, we would buy all U.S. cropland, which is 400 million acres with output of about $200 billion annually, plus 16 Exxon Mobiles, the world's most profitable company, one earning more than $40 billion annually. After these purchases, we would have about a trillion dollars left over for walking around money. Doesn't he make you feel silly? No sense feeling strapped after this buying binge. Can you imagine an investor with $9.6 trillion selecting pile A over pile B? Beyond the staggering valuation given the existing stock of gold, Current prices make today's annual production of gold command about $160 billion. Buyers, whether jewelry and industrial users, frightened individuals, or speculators, must continually absorb this additional supply to merely maintain an equilibrium at present prices. So there is some, you know, additional mining, Mm -hmm. so they're growing that cube slightly. A century from now, the 400 million acres of farmland will have produced staggering amounts of corn, wheat, cotton, and other crops, and will continue to produce the valuable bounty. Whatever the currency may be, ExxonMobil will probably have delivered trillions of dollars in dividends to its owners and will also hold assets worth many more trillions. And remember, you get 16 Exxons. The 170,000 tons of gold will be unchanged in size and still incapable of producing anything. You can fondle the cube, but it will not respond. (laughs) (laughs) Admittedly, when people a century from now are fearful, it's likely many will still rush to gold. I'm confident, however, that the $9.6 trillion current valuation of pile A will compound over the century at a far, a rate far inferior to the achievement of pile B. Wow, I remember the first time I read that. It still works two years later. Um, here's the last paragraph, and then we'll move on to, to what Dana had put out. Because this is when he, he kind of brings it all together. He says, our first two categories enjoy, ma- enjoy maximum popularity at peaks, peaks of fear. Terror over economic collapse drives individuals to currency-based assets, most particularly U.S. obligations. And by the way, what have we seen going on there? Oh, yeah. Interesting. They're kind of collapsing hard. to a degree, too. And fear of currency collapse, fought, not collapse, maybe I shouldn't use the word collapse. They're quickly retreating, which causes a lot of interest rate risk. Mm-hmm. So collapse is not the right word since that's what Warren's using to show it going away. Uh, most particularly, U.S. Ob- obligations and fear of currency collapse foster movements to sterile assets such as gold. We hear cash is king in late 2008 just when cash should have been deployed rather than held. Similarly, we heard cash is trash in the early 1980s just when fixed dollar investments were at their most attractive levels in memory. That's the junk bond mm-hmm. period. Um, on those occasions, investors who required a supportive crowd paid dearly for that comfort, meaning don't follow the others over the cliff. Um, my own preference, and you knew this was coming. I like how I put that in there. You knew this was coming because he knows he's playing the grandfather role to you and hopefully trying to lay this out so you can make your own decisions in the future. Is our third category. Investment in productive assets, whether businesses, farms, or real estate, ideally those assets should have the ability in inflationary times to deliver output that will retain its purchasing power while requiring a minimum of new capital investment, meaning do these things generate free cash flow. Mm-hmm. You've got this investment and it's generating additional income for you. I mean, it's not just you're hoping that it appreciates in value. You're actually, it's paying for itself because it generates income. There's a difference. Appreciation is different from income. I mean, they both can be income sources, but you're hoping that that current payment 
is what you're getting. That's the free cash flow that Warren Buffett's talking about. So farms, real estate, many businesses such as Coca-Cola, IBM, and our own C's Candy meet that double barrel test. Certain other companies, think of our regulated utilities, for example, fell it because inflation places heavy capital requirements on them. To earn more, their owners must invest more. Even so, these investments will remain superior to non-productive or currency-based assets. Whether the currency or a century from now is based on gold, seashells, shark teeth, or a piece of paper as today, people will be willing to exchange a couple minutes of their daily labor for Coca-Cola or some of C's peanut brittle. <laughs> nice little <laughs> plug, Warren. In the future, in the U.S. population, will move more goods, consume more food, and require more living space than it does now. People for, will forever exchange what they produce for what others produce. The whole bartering. Other countries' businesses will continue to be to efficiently deliver goods and services wanted by our citizens. Metaphorically, these commercial cows will live for centuries and give even greater quantities of milk to boot. Their value will be determined not by the medium of exchange, but rather by their capacity to deliver milk. Proceeds from the sale of milk will compound for its owners of the cows just as they did during the 20th century when the Dow increased. Here's what the, the, he replayed it from 2012 from 2011 from 66 to 11,497 and paid loads of dividends as well. Man, that's good stuff. We didn't even get into the meat of today's show and you still feel like we've been to church. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. It does. It, I mean, he, he just, he kind of told it the way it is. So, don't you wish you could have lunch with him? Don't you wish you could have lunch with him just one time? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, wouldn't it, that be awesome? Do. I mean, we've talked about it for the last two years. I want to go to Omaha. I mean, uh, it didn't hurt that I met a, an incredible cop last time we were down in Florida with a bunch of couples. We call him Omaha Steve. I'm going to, maybe I'll shoot him a link and um, say, <laughs> Omaha Steve, go listen. I gave you a shout out. But, um, I think Warren Buffett has a lot figured out in that aspect. Yep. And, um, you know, I know politically, I think Warren, I try to stay out of politics. I really do, especially with the show. Um, Warren, I think, you know, I, I got mad at him a little bit because I felt like he should stay out of politics too, you know, but, but I can't, you can't help but like the guy. That's a fact. Just incredible. But let's talk about what Dana uh, and Anspock has put together here with her 10 ways to wipe out your retirement savings, as she calls them code red moments. And um, the way way Dana set this up is, and by the way, I looked at this. It looks like Dana and I have been on the same career path. And, and I know she's jumped around to it. It looks like by the way she wrote this, she's worked in several jobs, but it's also how long she's been out in the field. Right. Um, she's been managing money for 18 years in the investment industry. That's about where I'm at. She's also um, moved around to several jobs, but she says, I've watched people lose money in almost every way imaginable. The most devastating losses are what I call code red losses. And the kinds you cannot recover from. Mm-hmm. And that's important because we, we run across this all the time. You guys have won the game. And I'm always shocked at how many people have already won the game, meaning that you've generated enough money for financial and capital for financial independence, meaning that you can, you can accomplish the goals that you've asked as long as you take the appropriate amount of risk and just don't get crazy mm-hmm. with it. But that, that greed, that human nature greed, Sometimes takes over, and I've watched people risk the financial independence that's already been attained right. just to get a little bit more, some of that easy money. So she goes through this. She goes, code red losses can be avoided. It takes a little knowledge and a lot of common sense. Eight of the ten investment decisions below are code red mistakes, two or not. R- read on to learn how to recognize a code red investment decision. So the first one is, 
It's so funny. Let me read the title first. Believing in a Stock. I had a conversation just last week with an individual that works for a high flyer. I mean, we'd all know the name of this company, and it has been tearing it up. And it's it reminded, a big stock right now. And it reminded me of my clients I used to have over at Lucent. Some of you, you know, younger people who are just now picking up podcasting and investing will go, Lucent? Who's Lucent? You would know who Lucent was if you were dealing with stocks around the dot-com bubble. Because Lucent was, you know, was based here in Atlanta really big technology company. And we worked with some of the executives at one of the firms I was with. They all love their company, all very bullish, and they all watch their money go to zero pretty much. So that's what, and she goes on. So this is what she says with believing in stock. The company you work for is doing well. You understand the potential of the business. You should own a lot of that company's stock. After all, it shows your level of commitment, right? Right. What do we say about that, Bo? What 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 is wrong with thinking you should have your company stock tied into where you work? Well, the problem is is that all of your human capital, right, your future wages, your current wages, your essential sustainability is already tied in with your company. So if all of your human capital, all your future capital is tied in, you absolutely do not want your financial capital to also be tied in. Because what if something goes really, really wrong, right? Uh, you hit the skids and then you have to either take a pay cut or even worse, you're laid off. And you're laid off because the company's not doing well, so the stock price gets crushed. You're getting it on both fronts. That is just the ideal way to not be diversified. It goes counter to that whole word of independence. The financial independence is to build independence away from, remember, working with your hands and your back and your mind. Um, so that, that's one big thing. She goes on, she goes, for several years I worked in a CPA firm that had a lot of clients who worked for Intel. One of the Intel executives owned 150,000 shares of Intel. At the time, Intel was trading at approximately $73 a share. Wow. This person had $11 million, the majority of their wealth in a single stock. In most cases, I would say that someone has won the game. I mean, in oh, most yeah. cases, at $11 million, bucks, <laughs> it's, it's you're probably financially Probably pretty hard to spend. It, it might even be somewhat hard to spend the income that $11 million could generate. Although some of it was restricted stock, the majority of the shares could be sold at any time. We had numerous discussions about the risk of holding so much wealth in a single stock. To our dismay, our advice fell on deaf ears. Feeling helpless, we watched, feeling some helplessness, we watched Intel go down and down. For the last year, it had been trading in the low to mid twenties. At $22 a share, the same $150,000, $150,000 shares are worth $3.3 million. Did you hear that? This guy's yeah. net worth dropped from eleven million down to three million. I mean, that that would rip your guts out. Oh yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's tough. You know, and the thing is, I've run across those type of people. The people who tell me they were millionaires if they'd have just sold. Mm-hmm. It's kind of probably like the field goal kicker who cost the team from going into, you know, the championship game right. or the playoffs, is that they replay that field goal over their head, in their head, over and over and over again. And I've seen people who have lost this type of money, and they just play it over in their head, over and over and over. So be very careful um, with that. And a a lot of companies have gotten a little bit better because, I mean, it it was very common. I know some companies, I'm not going to say their names because I don't want it to come off as negative because they're really good companies that are based here in Atlanta. There was a culture with a lot of people that if you got stock options, it was deemed inappropriate for you to sell because it showed that you didn't have a commitment to the company. And they actually would track 
what the insiders and the executives were doing with their stock. I think because we've had so many collapses with the dot-com bubble as well as with the 2008 period that we have seen periods now where companies realize that culture is just not appropriate right, anymore. Right. So, so that's adjusted. So this is – she codes this one. Dana codes this one as a code red. By all means, this is a yes because you can totally take yourself out of the financial long-term picture by making a bad mistake by this. Number two – and what I liked about Dana's style, by the way, Dana's a fee-only person, but she does not trash anybody who's selling products. Because, I mean, I've shared my story. I was a commission guy the first four years I was out of college when I was in the financial industry. So I don't dislike commission people, you know, but I feel like, it. you know, it's a little different because I've worked in both environments for an extended period of time. But I do like how Dana's style is, does not trash everybody. Right. And this is what she said. Buy an annuity, an annuity as an investment. You put two vowels together with the same letter. It's, it gets a little harder um, <laughs> for me to pronounce. But here it goes. It goes, an annuity is a good investment, right? An annuity is a contract with an insurance company. Insurance is a risk management tool, not an investment. When you buy an annuity, you're insuring a particular outcome, not making an investment. I love that line right there. Yeah. Insurance is a risk management tool, not an investment. I love, love, love when I read people who who, who write that and people who talk about that because I, I think that ties in perfectly. It's sort of a money guy echo. We feel the exact same way. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to cover a risk. It goes, the key to using an annuity properly is to understand what you're insuring and to know the cost of that insurance. An annuity can be a great risk management tool, but don't confuse that with investing. And that's one of the things I've talked about is annuity investing is getting better. I mean, you're seeing more and more the costs within annuities. And this, there's even now no load and Vanguard, um, TIA Craft and others are getting into the annuity field. So they're, they're kind of wiping out the commission side of it. So these things are getting better. Um, but I loved how she put that. She goes, don't confuse this with investing. Some variable annuities allow you to invest in mutual fund like accounts within the annuity. But there's an insurance wrapper surrounding the outcome. The insurance wrapper is promising either a particular guaranteed outcome upon your death, a death benefit guarantee, or a specific amount of future income you can draw out, a living benefit guarantee. I've watched too many people buy a variable annuity because they misunderstood how the guarantees work. Several years after after purchase, they find out it doesn't quite work the way they thought it did, and some erroneously cash out the variable annuity at that point, losing themselves many thousands of dollars. What she probably means by the erroneously is that what we found is is that if you are an annuity that you've been there for an extended period of time and you've made it past all the deferred sales charges, the surrender periods, and those type of things, it's more than likely you're, you could qualify to roll it over to a, a, a Fidelity, a Charles Schwab, a Vanguard, um, you know, do a, a like-kind exchange where you roll over that cash value, you don't incur the tax obligations. But you get it at a much lower cost Yeah, place. and you get it, and then that way you're not blowing the whole thing up and all that. You, you just don't eat it and take those losses all at once. So that's what I think she's, Dana's talking about. You should evaluate annuities as a way to secure sustainable income in, in retirement, but don't buy them for investment potential. Buy them to ensure an outcome. Code red? She wrote no. You might get locked into a product that can't, wasn't the best option for you, but you're not likely to lose 90% of your net worth with this choice. This is more of a speed bump type thing that you run into. Now, I will tell you, there was a case, and it, she, she even talks about this later, but I'm going to go ahead and give our, our case example. We did have a, a widow who had just lost a husband, 
inherited a large retirement account. Somebody had convinced her this 401k that she had inherited should be immediately rolled into an annuity, a variable type annuity. Um, we were fortunate enough that we got to her within the look-see period where right. you can unwind the annuity contract and we're able to get her out of it because it would have turned out to be horrible because she would, she needed this money, a portion of it to pay off some debts. Mm-hmm. She wanted to be debt free after her husband passed away. And then she needed to start living off this money. And the way this annuity was structured, um, she could only take 5% a year. Right. Which was not going to be enough. For that was her. not going to be enough to pay off the debts. That was not going to be enough to sustain some of the lifestyle choices she was going to have to make initially. So it was going to be a disaster. And the commission on the new, uh, for, for the guy who sold it to her would have probably been. It was eight to 10%. Oh, I mean, it would have been huge. Yeah. A, so a you can figure number. on an $800,000 investment. Um, the guy we probably ruined his Christmas. He probably walked, you know, he, I hope he had not cashed the 70 to $80,000 commission check that he probably would have received off of it. And that's probably what goes into your decision making. Wow. I can make 70 grand. Talking about a good Christmas for the kids this right. year. Yep. I mean, off of one cell. I mean, that's that's one thing. So that's number two. Number three, and this is one I want everybody to be aware of because I think we're all starting to forget. We all have very short-term memories, and real estate is starting to make money again. Mm-hmm. I mean, people. We. I mean, I think there was a, an article that just came out this week by Standard and Poor's that real estate went up by an average of 12.7% over the last year throughout the country. And there's a little bit of fear out there because interest rates are starting to rise. People are thinking they might be missing the boat if they don't jump on the real estate train right now. So here's what number three is from Dana. It says, get reeled into real estate. Rental real estate is a good way to build wealth with someone else's money, isn't it? I mean, that's what the infomercials say. <laughs> she must be talking about Thomas Thomas, I'm talking about you. You'd be rich like me. <laughs> yeah, so it's um in 2007... He really does sound like that. I don't want anybody to think that Bo's... No, that's really what he says on the commercial. (laughs) (laughs) You're a mess, Bo. In 2007, one of my good friends owned 12 rental properties with a cumulative value of over $3 million. Within a few years, all but one was lost through short sales or foreclosure. Then a long process of rebuilding wealth began. The investor is a smart cookie holding an executive position with a publicly traded company. She went to numerous workshops on real estate investing. What went wrong? And here's what, she, here's what Dana said. She violated one of the first rules of real estate investing. It takes deep pockets. Mm-hmm. When the economy goes down, renters can move out, leaving you with a mortgage payment and no income available to make those payments. If you don't have the cash flow to cover the mortgage as well as repairs and maintenance, you'll lose the property. Investing in real estate is a profession in and of itself. With real estate prices on the rise again, don't get reeled in with the lure of easy passive income. It isn't as easy as it looks. This is a code red. So I couldn't say it better. I mean, that's why I found myself reading this. I was like, Dana, right on. I mean, how many stories can you tell about both wealth management clients as well as tax clients yeah. who've just gotten in over their heads in real estate yeah, and I got have, themselves I, in a bad, fact, bad it's situation? It's so funny. They're not even a client anymore because I don't do the tax work anymore here at the firm. Um, but I had a client... You know, when I was doing all the tax planning and, and other, you know, compliance work with it, he was probably up to 30 to 40 rental properties. Um, he had a prof- daytime profession too, but, and he was, I remember thinking pre 2007, I used to look at him and go, he's got this thing figured out. His net worth must be tremendous. And then the music stopped, right? 
And I watched him go through some dark dates. And it's mm-hmm. funny, he called me just last week to check up. What's really funny is what he was calling me about. He was calling saying, hey, do you know so-and-so? I said, I went to high school with so-and-so. He goes, son of a gun. Because that guy used you as a reference <laughs> in his rental application. And since I knew you and he threw your name down, I was like, he must be a good guy. So I didn't do any background <laughs> checks on it. And I said, I have not talked to him since high school. So that's how, that's why he was calling that's last funny. week, but I don't even know if I'd shared that with you. Um, so I was able to give him his mother's name so I could, he could go track down his new address, hopefully through the mother that I gave him the name of that I knew from high school. But, um, he's just now rebuilding. And, and that's the thing. You don't want to do, take on more risk. I'm more of a, you know, the tortoise versus the hare. I'm not looking for get rich type, right? Get rich quick. In real estate, you can make a fortune, but man, leverage, leverage, leverage. When you use debt, it can bite you if you're not careful with it. So here's number four. Follow a tip. An opportunity to double your money is an investment opportunity worth pursuing. It could change your life, right? Hmm. Yeah, we deal with this. How often? Matter of fact, before we even started recording today, so we were just talking about people asking for stock tips. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how often do you go to cocktail parties? People go, Brian, whoa. What's to buy right now? Yeah. What's a good stock to buy right now? (laughs) You got a good one for us to buy? So many years ago, a well-educated friend of mine began telling me about a stock he had been investing. Investigating, I should say. I, I, I jumped the gun there. A friend had been investigating. It was poised for big things. He had been to the shareholders' meeting and reviewed the financial statements. He was convinced within a few years the value would triple. It was a penny stock. I bought in. When the price went down, I bought some more. Today, my thousands invested are worth a few hundred. And this is her. This is Dana talking, right? Yeah, she's she's, she's, she's talking this. about this. I still own shares as a reminder to myself of how easy it is to lose money. Did I make an investment? Nope. I gambled, and I lost. Yep. Um, I have a story. We picked up a client. I mean, it's been a number of years now probably going on six, seven years ago, his stockbroker was pitching penny stocks. Mm -hmm. And he'd had some success, but he also had had a lot of unsuccess. And I never forget the line that when this prospect came to see us, and he's become a great client, is he said, I haven't lost any money with my current advisor. I said, what do you mean you haven't lost any money with your current advisor? I'm looking at your account statement, and there's tons of losses in this account. Uh Uh-uh. He goes, my advisor shared with me that until we sell, we, we don't, don't have losses. <laughs> so as long as we hold these stocks, there's a chance they'll come back and we'll never lose that money. I kid you not. This is what I, I was told. And I was like, wow. I was like, the way you've got to look at your investments is what is it worth on January 1st? What is it worth on December 31st? Did it make money? I mean, and then expand that out to three years, expand that out to five years. If the value of your investments is worth less now, than it was five years ago, you lost money. That's a fact. You couldn't sell it and go use it. So it was a good line. But um, I, I think be careful of the penny stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're not, I mean, there's reason there's rooms, movies like Bowler Room and others, that they make movies about these pump and dump type scams, is that they're not super regulated and... Um, there's and, a lot of shady people. And be that. careful about trying to outs- outsmart the stock market anyways. You may see a great company that has a bad stock, and you may see a great stock that has a bad company. I mean, you really have to know what you're doing when you buy something. Um, you know, I still, my very first investment decision I ever made, I bought a company that had just gone through a recall, and I thought that it was down, 
doubled down when it went down, and I still own those shares as a reminder of how much I don't have this thing figured out when it comes to picking individual stocks. Individual stocks can bite you because even if you nail it, Bono's when I, I got, <laughs> that sounds funny. Bono's <laughs> when, um, goes back to the old Bo Jackson days, but, um, when I, when you do have luck, I mean, I've shared the story that I, I got fortunate with Apple stock in 2008 when it got its teeth kicked in. You know, I knew what the intrinsic value was based upon the cash level, what their balance sheet was with zero debt. You know, I got a steal on that thing, but even when you get a great stock and it starts running, when do you sell this thing? I mean, how many bad moods did I have when I owned Apple Absolutely. stock individually because it was down three or four percent? You got to get it right twice, and then you got to find the next one after that. So, I, I mean, I made good money on that, but the emotional roller coaster of owning individual stocks ultimately for me turned out it wasn't worth it anymore. Number five, changing lanes every year. Great analogy. Dana uses analogies like I do, and this one gave me a great visual. It says, smart investors watch the market and frequently move money into the latest high-performing investment, right? I call this chasing the white dot. Early in my career, I worked for a company that offered a science and technology mutual fund. I have no idea where Dana worked. I think she probably worked at Seligman. Okay. Because they had a fund in 1998 that made about what she's talking about. In 1998, it achieved returns in excess of 90%. One of my clients wanted to move all their money into this fund. They could not understand my reluctance. As a matter of fact, they treated me with disdain as if I was a fool for not encouraging them to pursue 90% returns. I asked them to sign a disclosure form if they wished to proceed. I had a deja vu experience in 2005. Nearly every person that came in and wanted me to put money into real estate, I would tell them, each time you say the word real estate, I want you to replace it with the word technology and tell me if it still sounds like a good idea. That's a great just it's a thing to great tell idea, clients. yeah. In 2011, gold became the investment fad of choice. We just heard Warren, you know, Warren Buffett rip that to shreds. Once again, everyone that came to see began asking about gold. Just about the time it reached its peak price. You've probably noticed if you constantly change lanes on a backed-up highway, always trying to inch ahead, you usually end up a further behind. Driving this way isn't effective. Investing this way isn't effective either. Pick a disciplined strategy and stick to it. Jumping from investment to investment is only going to slow you down. This is definitely a code red. And I did. I get a visual because how many times have you been on the interstate? You're in a hurry. You switch lanes because you think you see that lane's moving. As soon as you get over there, your lane that you just got out of takes off. And that is the way investing works. I mean, we do that Callan periodic table of investment returns by asset class, and it is not uncommon. Your worst performing investments can be at the top of the chart in a, in a following year. Just like your top performing funds can quickly be at the bottom of the list in the coming years. Trees don't grow to heaven. I mean, that's just, that's just a fact. So number six, play the currency card. And this, you know, we've all got stories on this one too. Experts can deliver higher returns, right? Find someone who knows how to trade and you'll be set. You also see these things advertised. If you wake up late night, you don't see it as much, but the Forex. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, in 2007, once. One of my clients came to meet with me about a month before his retirement date. He told me he wasn't going to need to withdraw his monthly retirement income from his IRA as he had planned. Why, I asked, intrigued. He said he'd invested $100,000 in a currency trading program that was paying him $5,000 a month. Now, wait a minute. Let's do the math on here. Five times 12. That's 60000 He puts 100 and gets 60. That's a 60% rate of return. I'll take that. He showed me the checks he was receiving. I got a sick feeling in my stomach. 
The math didn't add up. A $5,000 a month, that's $60,000 a year. Dana did the same math we did. On a $100,000 investment, no one can deliver returns that high. Not even old Uncle Bernie could do that. How do you explain this to someone who has checks in their hand? Within six months, this currency trading program was discovered to be a scam, and the perpetrators were arrested. I wasn't surprised. If experts could generate such high returns, why would they need your business? That's what I always say when people are advertising on late night, these infomercials. If they've really got it figured out, why do they need your money? There is a reason reason that Warren Buffett is a billionaire. It's because a lot of his money is tied up into Berkshire Hathaway. Whether you and I buy into Berkshire Hathaway, it's still going to rock and roll and keep going. So don't play the currency cards, the expert cards, or fall for any kind of outlandish promises. I've yet to see one of these programs work the way it was marketed. So is this code red? By all means, yes. Number seven, follow your ego. And this is a good one. Man, this ties back to bringing simple back. And I talked about that in the last podcast, too. Better investments are available to those with more money, right? This is, I always tell you, once you reach, reach a certain level, some investment companies are going to try to tell you how sexy their investments are. They're going to appeal to your ego, telling you how successful you are, so you got to buy their stuff because not everybody else can get this. If you get the opportunity to participate in something exclusive, it's likely to deliver better returns. Now, the one exception, I do like buying in bulk. There's nothing wrong if you have find an investment that has a million-dollar threshold to get into it so you get a price discount, like institutional funds. That is something that pays off that you have reached a certain asset level that you can work with somebody who can get you a better deal. But it doesn't mean buying into something just because it's kind of swanky. That's mm-hmm. not the same thing as getting a discount on the fees. Um, one of the most effective investment sales pitches I've seen and is the one that appeals to your ego. In 2006, one of my clients left my firm and moved her $4 million to a firm across town. They told her at her account size, she should be participating in exclusive investment opportunities available only to accredited investors. She invested all of her money into three exclusive investments they offered and lost it all. The recommendations made her made to her were grossly inappropriate. She was a widow with four daughters, under the age of 21. That makes my stomach hurt mm-hmm. just hearing that. But the firm she moved was of the same religion as she and told her they could handle everything, all of her accounting, her legal work, and the investing. So she trusted them. The regulators are investigating, which is good, but they won't be able to get her money back. If someone appeals to your ego, walk away. When it comes to investing, the only thing I've seen egos do is help someone to lose money. you got to have the fundamentals. got to have those basics. When you listen to, to Warren Buffett, how much of that was basics? Absolutely. I mean, it really was. It was common sense. Every time I read a letter to shareholders, I'm like, man, that's common sense. I, if we keep doing this, I'm going to be on my way to, I don't want to say billionaire, but well on my way to financial independence, doing exactly the same concepts as Warren. You don't hear any sexiness in that. That's just mm-hmm. doing the basics. You know, hitting those singles, not swinging for the fences and trying to get that grand slam. Number eight. By the way, that was a code red. Number eight, follow their ego. You can trust prestigious people in your community. That's why you should do business with them, right? We know where she's going with this. Checks and balances are good in government and investing. One way to make sure checks and balances are in place is to work with an investment advisor that uses a third-party custodian. The third-party custodian sends account statements directly to you. The investment advisor can make changes in your account, but the transactions are reported to you directly by the custodian. 
who isn't and should not be affiliated with the investment advisor. In fraud cases like the Bernie Madoff situation, his firm served as its own custodian, which meant they could make up what their clients would see on their statements. Not good. If there are no checks and balances in place, don't take the risk. It isn't worth your life savings. Definitely a code risk. And we did a podcast on this, Bo. Mm -hmm. Right after the Bernie Madoff case, we went to the SEC's website, pulled down his legal disclosures, and right there for everybody to see. Red flags all over All the place. over the place. I mean, we did a whole podcast on it. I'm sure you can go pull it in our archives. I mean, I look at the thing and I go, how did these guys collect any money and get millions and millions of dollars of wealthy people bring on. It's that whole greed concept. I think it's because these guys were hanging out with the cool kids. Yep. They had a lot of celebrities. They had a lot of charities. They were dealing with a lot of posh people who were seen as very popular in the community and the country club set. Yep. Got yep. totally taken advantage of because they weren't using common sense. Number nine. I've already talked about this one a little bit. Leveraging up. Borrowing at low interest rates and investing in high-growth assets is an excellent way to accumulate wealth, isn't it? About 10 years ago, and this is, this is Dana giving an example, about 10, year, 10 years ago, one of my clients shared his plan to build a $5 million home on a lot he owned on the coast in California. Whew, scares the heck out of me just hearing that. To complete the project, he would need a construction loan, the use of most of his liquid assets, and a loan against the portfolio he held at another financial institution. Whew. I projected the potential results and said, this only works if everything goes right. Nevertheless, he felt confident and moved forward. By the way, I've seen a case very similar mm-hmm. to this within my the people in my circle. So this, ooh, this rings so true. Soon after the home was completed, his employment contract was abruptly terminated. About that time, the real estate market and the stock market both tanked. Since he had a loan against a portfolio of stocks, he received a margin call. Remember that value of the stocks went down, so he had to cut pony up, which means you must deposit funds. His things stand today. His assets are gone, and he must rebuild from scratch. Mm. And by the way, they don't give $5 million loans to just anybody. He had to have had assets. Yeah. Yeah. Think twice before borrowing to invest. It causes ruin more often than it causes riches. Definitely a code red. I think about, I knew a lot of developers. My my area of the country where we are here in the South, a lot of booming um, construction development. And these guys, I'm talking about making seven-figure deals on each project that they were flipping every three and four months. They were making profit. I even remember a real estate attorney of mine that we, we played some cards with um, who was telling me about a guy we mutually knew. And I was like, would he be interested in, in you know, I had somebody who owned 30 acres. Would he be interested in looking at that 30 acres to do a development on? And, and the attorney said, no, he's got a threshold now. If he can't make over a half a million dollars within that three it. or four month period, he's not going to do it. He's going to move on to another project. And now I look back and all those guys went broke. Yep. It all went broke. And it's because they were using, using leverage assets. And even though they're making money, they were rolling it into the next project, going bigger and bigger. And then when the music stopped, it all went away. Yep. And it's just crazy. Um, last one, number 10. Great job, Dana, by the way, if I hadn't already said it. Number 10, mistaken motives. People, marketing, investments, and financial advice are highly regulated and must give you advice that is in your best interest, right? And we just had a podcast listener write us this week who the insurance agents would not, well, every time he asked about fiduciary, they wouldn't answer the question. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we can do fee only. 
we'll just, you know, we'll give you the recommendations. You can, you know, write us up something, but it's better if you just let us invest it for you. And then the investment companies will pay you, pay us the fees. I like how they, they say the investment companies right. will pay the fees. But it goes, it goes, people, and so here's what it says. About five years ago, some friends of mine asked to meet with me to potentially hire me as their financial advisor. They all met, also met with another financial advisor they knew. I explained to them that I was fee only, which meant I could not be compensated by commissions in any way that I had a fiduciary duty to give them advice that was in their best interest. I took the time to explain how index funds work and ran a projection for them using what I deemed to be a realistic return in the 6 to 7% range. They hired the other advisor. Three months later, I received a panic call from them. They told me their advisor, they called their advisor and they needed about $150,000 to remain liquid as they were shopping for a new home. However, he had invested their entire portfolio over $1 million into illiquid investments, which included two annuities and one privately traded REIT, which is a real estate investment trust. All were products that paid large commissions to the advisor who sold them. Asked for all the documentation, was able to get them out of the annuities on a technicality. After solving their problems, asked them why they hired the other person. They said it was because he said 12% returns were realistic. Well, I said to expect only 6 to 7%. They remain my clients today. Although you can't learn the entire investment industry, you can always ask for details about compensation. Follow the money and it will tell you a lot about the motive. Commission products have appropriate uses, and there's some great advisors who are compensated via commissions. But if someone is putting your entire life savings into illiquid, high-commission products, you ought to be looking for a new advisor. Code red? No. But someone with mistaken motives can still cost you a lot of time and money. Now, she listed that as a code red no. I will tell you, I think that widow that got put in those annuities right. with her 401k, that, that was a code, a code red. red because sure. she was going I mean, a lot of the penalties would have been over 10% or right around 10%. So you can imagine if she had to yank out a good bit of money, we're talking about really taking a big bite out of her long-term financial independence. So Dana, great work. We're planning on probably giving Dana a tweet out just to let her know we're thinking, you know, we use some of her work. It's nice to see like-minded people out there in the industry. And, you know, that's our ultimate goal. I started this show with the purpose of really helping people who didn't qualify for my services. And then little did I know it was going to turn into getting a lot of podcast clients, getting some, you know, more attention out there in the financial industry. But this thing is my baby. And it's, it's grown, I think, because you guys recognize we have a passion for trying to help you. I want you to be successful with your assets and building financial independence. So write us. Let us know what you think of what we're doing here. Let us know what you think of the new website. Check us out on Twitter. Check us out on Facebook. The website for the show is money-guy.com. I'm your host, Brian Preston, B-R-I-A-N at money-guy.com. My co-host sitting across the way is Bo Hansen, B-O at money-guy.com. I'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. (laughs) 